Hey, everybody, welcome to the Back to Brick podcast. I'm your host, Garrett. And today we're going to be doing the, of course, Lego designer interview. And I think this person has been really undervalued and underrated. I'm a big Lego architecture fan. And I know a lot of people are too. And he is definitely taking this to another level with a bunch of his builds. So RJ Boutelier has been on Instagram and uh, around the world presenting some of his epic models. And I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast if you're an architecture fan as well as a Lego fan. So definitely keep listening. We've got a great interview coming up. And for all those that are first-time listeners, thank you for joining us. And all those that are repeat listeners, thank you even more. Uh, no, I just am kidding. You're all equal in my eyes. Thank you for ta- taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you like it, please subscribe. We continue to provide as much content and interviews as possible so that you can learn about the behind the scenes picture of your favorite Legos. And, uh, you know, now we'll move forward and uh, I'll shut up. You can get right into the interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Back to Brick podcast again. And today's guest. Rocco, I'd like to introduce you and uh, welcome you to the podcast. How are you today? Happy to be here. I'm doing pretty well. Great. Great to hear. Now, uh, Rocco, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, uh, what you like to do with Lego? Sure. So um, about myself, I basically do Lego for a living. I am a Lego artist and that's sort of a freelance gig that's Um, more recently become a sustainable business for myself and the things I like to build are architecture related. I do have a degree in architecture, so I'm really interested in exploring that. And the majority of my efforts lately have been what my exhibit is titled. It's called Landmark Landscape. So I kind of explore with my body of work that's sort of ever expanding um the relationship between the two and certainly some are more landscape some are more landmark but it's uh it's a cool i guess um topic that's kept rolling within the past kept me busy and there's always something new to sort of explore Uh, that's really cool to especially have it you know as i mean your job to to be a lego yeah. artist uh I, I know that's a lot of dream jobs for a lot of us out there uh myself included uh and of course i hope to pick your brain a little bit through this interview uh on mm-hmm. on some of those things um i I'll always start off with the first question kind of just get the ball rolling of um you know we've got millions and millions of minifigures billions really if you count them all uh out there what if you could have a minifigure what would it look like and what kind of utensils would it be carrying? Um, I don't know. See, so I'm not so much into the set buying aspect or anything like that, or like collecting, um, you know, any sort of Lego IP or anything like that. Um, I guess I've never really thought about, I don't really think of Lego in that way where it's, like a collectible thing for me. It's more in terms of individual parts usage and thinking of 
ways to use parts. So like, I, if I could think of Lego utensils, it might be something that could get like a certain ornamental detail of an architectural landmark accurately or something. And that is sort of where my mind goes rather than um, like per se a minifig for myself, if that makes sense. I think it does. Uh, there are definitely major aspects to Lego that deviate constantly. Um, mm -hmm. I There are people that just collect the sets and then there are people that just build mocks. Um, and I think that I, I think you would fall more so into that realm, uh, which that's the great thing about being in the Lego community. It's always different. Um, there's different groups and different styles of doing anything. Yeah, totally. Everyone has their they each bring something different to the table and that's what is pretty amazing about it. And as you said, what you're bringing to the table is you studied architecture. Um, can I ask where you studied architecture? Yeah, so I studied at Illinois Institute of Technology. It was a five-year undergrad program um, and that's in Chicago. So I still live in Chicago right now. And I finished that up in 2017. So for three years now, I've sort of been building this business on my own. And I guess my touch-off point from that is, you know, as, as an architecture student, because I've always had an affinity for architecture as well, is there's a whole process. You have to, you go through architecture school, then you go to a firm, architecture firm, kind of grow from there, designing, uh, helping the firm, and then it's like years down the mm -hmm. road that you may may build your own firm. I guess right. how did how did you get from that standard path into this Lego path? Yeah, that's probably a great place to start actually. So I had been obviously building with Lego for as long as I can remember, but in high school around the time I had my first um public or attended my first public convention in 2011. Uh I think a couple years before that is when I started seriously building my own things just based on um, my first model was Sears Tower or Willis Tower as it's now known in Chicago, kind of a hometown favorite. And from there, I sort of just kept everything at a consistent scale and kept exploring with new landmarks and um, eventually sort of had the foundations of what you might call a body of work. And that was sort of around, you know, several years into this and then kind of out of nowhere just started to have people approach me asking to attend other shows at the one show I did every year which was Brickworld in Chicago and in 2015 I had you know someone from London come and invite me to an exhibition out there and then um, Grayson Bates who runs the Brick Universe events when those were just starting off he came to Brick Universe looking for potential people with large bodies of work to contribute to his new show. And that's where the ball started to get rolling with that. So by that time, I was in my, I had just finished my third year of architecture school. So I was kind of fortunate to, I guess, have opportunities come along the way. But it's, I think it's also important to note that I still was putting the effort into um, like some people will go to college without and sort of put Lego on hold for a few years for obvious reasons. But I wanted to make sure that I kept going and didn't sort of want to sacrifice any of that 
creative time, especially when I'm studying the thing I'm passionate about and applying that directly to the art that I was making. That was really important for me to be able to keep doing that as I was in school and not put that on hold. So I sort of credit that. That's like the one thing I'll credit to myself, like the best um, decision I made in terms of my own path. But then the rest of it, I think, was um, one of the main differences is that I guess I had a body of work that was an assembly of years and years worth of models. I think at that time it was about 40 different models that could be exhibited side by side in a large gallery space, which was what those other um, those other opportunities were predicated on, that sort of um, display quality. But other than that, it was sort of right time, right place. And I was very fortunate to meet those people and, you know, establish those relationships and it's kind of snowballed into um, making a living off exhibitions and commissions at this point. And really, it wouldn't be anything without good bodies of work either, which you have a plethora of, because if you didn't have good work, they wouldn't have approached you to, to travel to these shows or continue to do this. Sure. I I guess that's fair to point out. Um, obviously, I'm always still learning, and that's one of the great things I love about LEGO is that you can obviously take it apart and rebuild it. And you know, if you come up, if you think of a new way to do something, then you can take apart something you have done, you know, several years ago. Like I've taken apart some of my earlier pieces and redone them completely, either redesigned or with new colors or something that I had originally envisioned that wasn't available available at the time. And it's just great to be able to have that sort of freedom, not like you're sort of rewriting your own history, but it's like you're revisiting where you started sometimes and um, constantly sort of reevaluating. And I think that's where art kind of definitely comes into play with, you know, the broader Lego community, because it's great to be able to talk about these tensions between where you feel it needs to go in your mind, as well as where the community is heading in terms of not just newly available parts, but new conversations with new people you meet. And that kind of relates to doing a ton of different shows as well as like new conventions and also going sort of outside of your comfort zone with like international events and things like that. And most of your designs, they're rather large. Um, I, I guess they started off smaller, but... Right, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's fair. That's a fair description of it nowadays, but they did start out, I guess, at a much humbler, more intimate um, size or scope. Did Were those beginning builds just for yourself, or were you kind of branching off of uh, you know, requests from people? So totally. The the first, um, you know, probably six or seven um, years worth of these scale models that I was doing were certainly an exploration of what I found to be interesting, as well as um, eventually it came to be what I found would be um, less like well-known in the public eye and more reflection of what I was learning in school. So, you know, obscure things that obscure in terms of um, public awareness, but 
pretty notable for the precedents that they established in the architectural um, you know, evolution of styles. So things like maybe the inland steel building in Chicago that are kind of off the radar, um, but you know, as an extremely significant work of modern architecture. That was sort of one of my first um, reflections of how my academic had informed my artistic, um, you know, subject matter. And then, you know, lately it's been in, in more recent years, I guess I have evolved more of an appreciation for historical context and um, how that fits into the portrayal of an individual landmark. So that's why I, eventually I sort of, once I realized that it did, that my body of work was suitable for this sort of gallery style layout, um, that's when I started to think of it in those terms and named it Landmark Landscape as sort of a, th a, th a thesis in a way of basically um, quickly being able to convey the gist of it or what I'm trying to accomplish, but also imply a much deeper um, like internal thought process that's going on with me in terms of how I decide to do each, each new piece and um, the overall direction or arc, I guess, that I've been pursuing in recent years. So this is the long explanation of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's very academic or a scholarly answer uh, <laughs> uh very i mean you it, it, you've thought of it that's the thing you mm -hmm. you didn't just like say ah you know I, I really enjoy lego and you know this part but there's an actual thesis behind it no for sure and um that's one of the reasons i'm really grateful for the exhibitions like brick universe because each one of those you know it takes eight hours to set up and then you're standing there doing meet and greets but your mind wanders throughout the day and uh, then four hours to pack up. So you have a lot of time to sort of look at what you've done. And um, I guess, uh, you know, you might see some things in your work that bothers you that you did it that way. And then that makes me want to take it home and redo it. But beyond that, it also just gets me thinking about what I've done and where I can possibly go from there. And as you said before, you're continuing to learn. Um, because there's always different Lego techniques and some that are, you know, uh, I guess what would be the word is encouraged by Lego while others are discouraged. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. And I'm guessing, I mean, especially with some of your own designs here, just getting that style, you'd have to branch out the, to get the curves, to get those angles correct. For sure. And I think, you know, in terms of um, what I'm trying to say here, so it's really valuable, um, like I sort of mentioned earlier, that there is a community out there and you have this endless, infinite pool of inspiration of just the real world subject matter, which is what I deal with, but also how other builders have used these uh, parts and things that are being introduced for the purpose of play purposes or, you know, if it's a technic element for a functional purpose in an official Lego set, but then it's totally up to you as a creative individual to sort of repurpose that and retool those elements to 
um, whatever purpose you are looking for or whatever shape you're trying to accomplish or a feel that you want to get, whatever sort of vitality you want to bring to the piece you're working on. So it's great to be able to have those, like I said, endlessly inspirational resources of every facet of um, the process for me to be able to draw from and, uh, you know, bring something new to the conversation. And it continues to evolve every year also with, you know, new parts, um, new buildings, and especially just new ideas, as you said, just standing there for hours on end, thinking about what might be next. Um, because as I asked earlier, most of these are commission based, I'm guessing, because of the scale, correct? Nowadays, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I guess I'd like to talk about at least a few of them because there there's some super unique ones you have um, in, in your landmark series. Your two largest uh, are ancient Rome, and your latest is the Forbidden City. Yep. Can you can you talk about kind of the process of maybe one of those just to? Uh, kind of outline how you would go about building something so massive as as these. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, it's important to note that obviously none of these are created in a vacuum. There are, because of the size of it and the resources that it takes to build each one, there are very real, you know, forces at work that are way beyond my control that sort of inform the final product. And these things take months at a time. So, you know, you might have like a slow week, but you have to make up with that. You have to make up sometimes like lost progress elsewhere and buckle down sometimes. But, um, and then there's, you know, negotiating with the client. So you just have to sort of be open and like they, um, they sort of touch on this in architecture school, but you really learn in the field how to, um, you know, be able to best, I guess, advertise or um, your own best spokesperson, I guess. So you know where your strengths lie. And as long as you can sort of convey your vision to a client, then they're willing to invest in something of that sort of the size of that sort of undertaking. And um, so that's an important uh, preface for both Ancient Rome and uh, Forbidden City, which are both two successive commissions that were each my largest at the time. And um, Rome was, um, it was really profound in sort of a way that no other piece I've done has ever been because obviously it was so expansive and I was biting off a huge chunk rather than, you know, starting with just the Colosseum, let's say, and then eventually saying, oh, I could expand this, you know, and revising it from there. But this started from the con- from the start as, you know, a massive vision that they wanted for their museum. So in that way, it kind of did <laughs> scare the crap out of me a little. And <laughs> that's, I think that's good because if it gets you nervous and um, that just makes you want to discover more about the source material and, uh, Ancient Rome is basically, you know, it's the foundation of the whole Western world. So to say that it's a vast rabbit hole would be a vast understatement. Um, 
and there there was like endless inspiration just you know when i'm sort of stopping to eat dinner or whatever i'd be watching youtube videos on um a different emperor or uh an important senator in between just uh designing this huge thing and i think the design took about 30 days and there i just sort of immersed myself in a ton of research and really had fun with it and knew that i was sort of sort of onto something or pursuing something that i had never really done before and i think as long as you can have that feeling of accomplishing something that you didn't you wouldn't necessarily believe you could have done beforehand is really important and definitely impactful um it's hard to overstate the value or the impact the carryover that has on the quality of work i think when you're so emotionally invested in it and you're able to immerse yourself in it with very little distraction um sort of counter to that or somewhat counter to that would be the experience with designing forbidden city because this project started out in march and we had the proposal and everything was agreed upon by the middle of the month and then everything sort of you know someone jumped on the trampoline and everyone went flying with what's been going on with the world right now and that's been a sort of um right so right away i guess that project was put on hold indefinitely as well as basically every other project i had and every exhibition as well so it you know it was a bit of a shock but it um i think it was important for myself to uh take a moment to consider like how i wanted to how i would go about this or what i would do in the meantime and i decided to move forward on the project having already had an established relationship with this client and i had gone to um i guess i should say the client was for it was for a museum in brazil so i had gone to brazil in january to install the imperial rome piece so having a relationship like that was really important in making the decision to just proceed with Forbidden City because that wouldn't have been a risk that I would have taken otherwise on a first time, you know, experience with any given client. But besides that, I think it really taught me that it was important to not expect sort of perfect conditions um like I had with my, like I guess I could say I had with designing Rome, but just to not expect that in every project because that's you know the world changes and it's not always realistic to be able to depend on that sort of stability especially with these enormous projects but at the same time i was able to really um push through it and find things that really kept the ball rolling despite the um endless sort of distractions and the endlessly worsening situation um especially here in the states but it's been um it was great to sort of try a style of architecture that i had never tried before that and that turn ended up um 
I ended up using tons of different pieces that I'd never used before for like entirely different shapes and forms and things like that. And sort of just the way that Chinese architecture is constructed and standardized was really important to convey in this. So I sort of wanted a standardized effect as well to come across in my uh, overall vision for the whole complex. So despite the fact that it is, that there are something like 800 individual buildings there, it was really important that they're all sort of distilled from the same vernacular, the same design language, and that sort of um, assembly or the types of parts I was using, the parts usage, I guess you could say, um, was really important to have standardized in the same way that the traditional Chinese architecture was actually uh, made. So yeah, that's a, uh, I guess that's a brief version of uh, Rome and Forbidden City and all that went into that. <laughs> and they are very different designs because you see, I mean, the Forbidden City is a rectangle. It, it It's mm -hmm. in confines of a moat and you have yep. a specific geometric style to it. While Rome, it's everywhere. You've got yes. buildings on top of buildings, on hills, on, in, running into each other at weird angles. Very so, sprawling. Like, yeah, very different styles that you have to, as you say, adapt to and mm -hmm. build off of because each style is different, um, especially to traveling anywhere in the world. Like your... Um, Forbidden City, I really enjoy the uh, the bronze lions, or uh, oh, yeah, um, just the style of how you could make them in that scale. Because you know, I mean, if you've seen pictures, you know what you're looking at. Um, mm -hmm. And and then having angles using the Lego tracks um, to kind of give those walled off features or the river bends. Yeah, so I guess. Uh... What's your question there? <laughs> wasn't me. I, I guess there wasn't really a question there at all. It was just okay. kind of <laughs> stating that <laughs> there it, it's the design features are just uh, it's 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 interesting to see how you change in that difference. And in your process, yeah, are you are, I'm guessing you're constantly learning the history of these places. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and so it was very much a gear shift between the two and like I was saying with ancient Rome, there was so much history to look at and a wealth of resources, but it was much more difficult with Forbidden City to find that sort of the same endlessness of inspiration because it is very limited in terms of what's out there and what's available um, just because it is sort of an East Eastern versus Western cultural thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, just the rectilinear layout of Forbidden City is in stark contrast to the layout of Rome. So that definitely played a role in terms of, um, you know, so fr from the start, they were almost completely different because the way that we went about planning Rome was in a way trying to include all these different areas like the Palatine Hill and the Capitoline Hill. We knew we needed, but then we also need the Colosseum and probably the river would, would have been great to include. So that sort of established four 
really important nodes right off the bat that we needed to get, but the rest was sort of an amorphous boundary that traced and tried to include as as much many you know socially relevant, culturally relevant um, landmarks of antiquity that we could. And um, uh, Forbidden City, on the other hand, is you know still existing in pretty much pristine state and was much from from the start we knew exactly what we were doing but at the same time and i did talk about this a bit in the write-up of the forbidden city which you can see on the photos but it was really important i think one of the things i with that piece and with you know any other historical piece it's important not to um lose sight of the of what you're trying to express with an artistic piece uh, and sacrifice that for strict real realism because a historical landmark is not going to be enhanced necessarily by making sure you have every single little HVAC unit on some of the roofs or some of the weird little maintenance mm -hmm. sheds that have been set up here and there or, you know, parking lot details. Like, why would I bother with some stuff like that? I mean, it's much more important to exhibit the his, the historical preservation that has happened on something like Forbidden City that is still there that you can see. So, well, I, I like to sort of think of that as the tension of realism. So, like, at the end of the day, any good, anything that's worthy of being called art, I guess, would be, would explore those tensions between um contemporary in contemporary forces as well as historical accuracy and the information of what you're trying to convey so that was sort of a that constant push and pull um as far as that tension goes was something that was much more um omnipresent when i was designing forbidden city as opposed to ancient rome because ancient rome there was a lot that I could not necessarily get away with because I made sure to include every single like little nook and cranny and didn't want any like, you know, corners cut where you could have opted for like an open green field or something if you just couldn't quite figure out these, um, you know, what was there or these ancient buildings or whatever. But um, you, I did have a lot more freedom in terms of, you know, uh, establishing a, a hierarchy between the buildings that the plebs lived in. So just like I would use a lot of tan and some headlight bricks for windows and um, things of that nature. But then all the marble and limestone buildings that, you know, the officials inhabit and uh, use for government purposes, those were really important to be in white. So like at a basic level of color that establishes the hierarchy immediately um but then it's like extra nuances on top of that that establishes the prestigiousness um beyond that but with forbidden city it was obviously all these things are thrown together because traditional chinese architecture buildings of the humblest scale and the largest scale uh, or i guess the grandest scale like the hall of supreme harmony they're all built of the same exact materials just on different scales so that was that was a challenge i think 
that was, like I said, a shifting of gears that was almost foreign to me and, you know, kept me second guessing myself. And that's important. I think you always want to be in a position where you're wondering whether you're doing the right thing or whether you're using the right pieces or whether it's like the grandest building on site is still speaking to the lowest um, of the buildings, you know, and as long as that sort of parts usage, you can see that they're of the same vernacular. I think that's important to preserve. And that was one of the huge challenges uh, just in terms of contrasting those two pieces. That's a really great way to, to kind of describe it. Having the largest buildings still pay homage to the lower uh, buildings because you, you really don't want just the one key feature because if some, if somebody notices something wrong with a small building, then you've lost them. It's it's kind of uh, it's not yeah. a small scale focus point. It's supposed to be the larger just view of it. Because you're right, like the Colosseum. Exactly. Everybody knows the Colosseum, but then uh, all these smaller temples or buildings or the bridge that crosses the river. Like I noticed, you have a walkway down to a swimming uh, a platform area because that's. <laughs> that's what it's designed to be like that's i mean if you look yeah. at um older designs and i kind of leads into my next questions is with these designs how do you focus on the scale where do you have a like a key feature you've you just look and like that's it that's where i'll i'll design from that scale up or is it an overall uh you kind of change it as you go and it, are your designs designed physically first or are you using your computer generated systems to kind of help you with this process okay so yeah that's an important thing to establish is the scale has i've maintained a roughly 1 to 650 scale and throughout my whole body of work and the idea behind that um you know having been inspired by other uh Microscale architecture builder, builders as well as I was starting off and then sort of coming into my own with my own body of work. The the way that that scale sort of came about was when I did the Willis Tower. Just I used one plate, one black plate for the floor, and then one clear plate for the window, and then stacked it up with the accurate number of floors. So with that high rise, it actually worked out and has the right number of floors, but it's not quite always. Um, that um, doesn't quite fit that well with every building. But regardless, that set the scale. And since then, I've just sort of run with it. And I, uh, like I said, I guess the thing that makes me able to pitch, that allows me to be able to pitch, um, I guess, um, confidently to a client that I would be able to do these huge things at this scale is having not only an established body of work at that scale, but also an understanding of, you know, the way that parts um, work or the way that you can achieve an incredible amount of detail despite the tiny size. And for me, at least, I guess this kind of loops back into the start of the conversation with minifigures is that, you know, um, originally the client approached me and said, yeah, we want uh, minifigs and soldiers like marching throughout the streets of Rome. And like, <laughs> I couldn't have been on a, like my mental image couldn't have been further away. Like on a, to it was on a totally different page. And 
like once I presented this idea of doing a vast layout and how much you could include in it, it's like, you know, the people, not that they're irrelevant, but it's, it becomes much more about, you know, a broader landscape and a broader, less, um, less generic, um, bite-sized look at what a city might have looked like. Like, I'll be the first to say that I, that it would be super cool if Lego did ancient Rome sets, like with little scenes or something. Like, you know, you have a temple building from the forum and senators on the roster or something weird. But um, it would totally be, um, that would be great for what Lego is trying to do as a sort of playset. But when he approached me with this idea of a thing that goes into a museum, I think it was important to really zoom out in terms of how much you could actually uh, portray and how much more that would teach you about the subject matter than something that is at a larger scale but of a smaller area and has minifigs everywhere because at the end of the day we know what people sitting in an amphitheater or in the coliseum looks like um and what the gladiators would do like on the arena floor but you don't necessarily even know what was just mere feet. You don't know that there was a 30 meter Colossus standing next to the Colosseum. And that's the Colossus is where Colosseum got its colloquial name from because it's actually called the Flavian Amphitheater. And without that sort of surrounding context, I don't think, I think in a museum setting, like I said, is much more impactful and there's so much more you can learn from it by having that additional context in this vast sort of area. And I think that kind of got at the first half of your question. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's in, in terms of scale, that's really why my, uh, where my focus goes is sort of this um, larger view and much more contextual and, you know, researched. And then you can tell those sorts of stories and because you're literally showing it you know, without the sort of mm -hmm. distractions of what the minifigs are holding or what they're doing. And and that is, I think, a challenge for anyone, especially, it doesn't even have to be an architecture set. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I have that issue with any other set that I design. And I mean, I like to do architecture sets as well. Like I, I built um, the Biltmore Mansion that's in uh, Asheville, um, North Carolina. Um, and it's a beautiful building, but I you had to figure out where you would scale it. And it has to right. be able to still show the detail, not only of the building, but the carriage house. Then you have your the mm -hmm. main drive and the, the garden scene. It's It, it, it has to work together, like you said, um, and, and kind of still give that detailing without losing it. Yeah. And I totally give a ton of credit to people who are able to come up with these scenes that are almost closed loops where it, you know it's sort of it's a totally different method of presentation that you would um just in terms of as simply as putting it like on the table at a on the convention floor for people to see like having minifigs and building a whole scene out of it that sort of encapsulates a small story is like totally different from something from what i do so my opinions on scale as far as what I'm pursuing are definitely not meant to like 
you know, um, diminish the work that these amazing builders are doing. Because at the end of the day, like I still get inspired by those pieces as well. And, you know, I get a ton of, uh, so many of my ideas from people who almost exclusively build with minifigs and vignettes and things like that. So it's, um, again, I think it just speaks to the broad applicability of Lego as, you know, a creative medium or like something you could totally use for something that's, I guess, more academic, like I'm trying to do, or also more playful and more fun, which is, you know, what Lego was created to do to begin with. And it's totally, I'm, I'm glad in a way that the Brick Universe events, they are sort of, they are um, unquestionably gallery style layouts where there's like myself and Paul Hetherington, Jonathan Lopes, Leah Chan, these people who have established bodies of work from, you know, several years of building things and not really taking them apart, you know, just adding them to the collection. But at the same time, it does keep me humble because we always have a fan zone there and it's always great to see what the local guys are doing and how they're advancing as well because sometimes we see them a couple times a year just depending on where the shows are at but um it's always great to have the lego experience centered on um how where it comes from where it stems from and that also speaks to the audience which are kids at the end of the day so you know the things i've been doing recently will be for museums but the people who are more likely to come to something that's built as a lego museum or with brick universe a lego convention are um you know families like parents and the and bringing the kids for a day so that's i think it's great to always you know make sure you remember like who the audience is for but still try and pursue um you know these broader ideas or broader concepts, whatever you're sort of um, eager to uh, work at next. You're right with the minifigure. It's it, it's difficult, honestly, I think, to build more in a minifigure scale than it is in a smaller scale uh, because you still have to have that detail, but in an interaction of almost a person with a minifigure i i truly appreciate when people have like a 16 by 16 block or plate of a design and they fit a scene from a movie in there with a minifigure oh, scale yeah. like it's it's super impressive and that's when like i went to brick universe and saw you uh in austin it's it's great to see all of the different design styles because that's what legos as you said designed for is to continue to change and have people create in their own way or their own image of what they see yeah, as art totally. yeah and it's great that you know even going back to new pieces and um, new colors that are constantly emerging it sort of reestablishes or always reinvigorates it with a new sort of sense of vitality like there are always going to be some new plant elements so just in terms of I guess greenery even it's really cool to see how that always you know the 10-year difference between the two is just like miles apart but still based on you know a one by one stud and it's um it's great to have that connection um tying tying it together even though two different techniques could be totally different exactly and i 
like i don't i can't even explain it because you're right it's just with the change and new parts you can continue to adapt continue to learn and realize like ah oh, you know they use that part in a way that i've never thought about which yep. makes you realize well shit mine is terrible now <laughs> or at least this aspect and then you go back and redesign you're like okay this will be good for at least another two years before a new part comes out <laughs> right yeah sometimes that's the um that's the, might be a bit of a the dilemma but it, it's always good, I think, to sort of respect you where you were at the time that you maybe mm -hmm. initially, I guess it, it, it's weird for me to like talk about this particular aspect because it's, um, like I said, I guess most of the Lego community, what they build may only last for a few shows, but mine is sort of, it's, it's like it goes on tour and then, you know, is around for quite a while. So I have time to like sit there and, um, you know, eventually if I think I can do it better, like I can do that. But I think it's also important to, you know, realize some things that I was going for in the original builds that still need mm -hmm. to be carried over or what's worth sacrificing. And I don't know, it, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting sort of internal uh, struggle for me to, justify redoing something but also figuring out um like reigniting the spark that got the initial piece um going and just paying not necessarily paying homage or like nostalgia service to that but recognizing the significance in what you did maybe 10 years ago and how it's important to kind of preserve a sense of that despite new pieces and new techniques um at our disposal um years later it's a very pure way of looking at it because you're right. It, I mean, yours may be around a lot longer than others, but it's it's about appreciating what you've done with what you have in your at your disposal, and uh, I think that's a really great way of looking at it. Um, with, so I just had a few other questions real quick. Um, you're featured where you were in 2018 at the Lego House. What, how how do you feel about that? What, what what went through your head when you were asked to do that? So, yeah, uh, 2018 was kind of interesting because I, I was at Lego House uh, twice for a sort of smaller lobby exhibit in April um, of different buildings that builders around the world had built based off the designs of Bjarke Ingels Group, Big, who designed Lego House. So that was kind of a cool thing to you know, test the waters. And then at the same time, we were preparing for the September um, installation in the Masterpiece Gallery. And they had initially approached me the first year, but um, that didn't pan out because there were some sort of budgetary restrictions at the start of when they were starting with this idea. And I, um, I guess at the time that they approached me, they weren't going to be able to um have my stuff um or be able to cover my expenses to get there which is obviously a big thing when this is sort of my living i need to always worry about those logistics but regardless i am um really grateful that they asked me the second year to be a part of it and that was um i think it was an amazing opportunity to see um such 
like a wide range of builders from um, like a couple people that I had met before and actually displayed with before at other exhibitions in the States, but then, um, you know, and one or two from Europe that I had met before that, but so many other builders that I had never, you know, that I had seen their work before, but never even thought that I would meet in person. It was just kind of an amazing thing to be asked to come together with these handpicked, this handpicked group of um, builders with totally different, um, I guess, skill sets or interests and be able to be among that was just, I don't know, sort of, <laughs> I guess, yeah, it's a once in a lifetime um, opportunity and it's it was just amazing to be a part of. It's it's really cool to to like think about it or see it in a place that is designed just just for Lego. Uh, you're you're one yeah. of the other you're the second person I've talked to that has things that are displayed in the Lego house and it it just means that Lego isn't just about, you know, their designs. They they understand the community is it's there and has such creativity in it which mm -hmm. I think is really engaging and kind of fuels others to continue to create. No, definitely. And yeah. Um, yeah. Like I was alluding to before, I think it, it's just, it's great that, um, you know, between ourselves, like the fans and the creators and the artists, we all have endless inspiration between each other, but then there's also what Lego is doing itself and not just in set design but also you know in terms of community outreach and it's um it's it is pretty amazing to see how far that's come and the fact that we have that there is sort of a building that it's meant to be experienced by all and um you know provides that opportunity for fans around the world as i guess sort of a goal to strive for it's it's weird in a way because i imagine there are some kids right now who visit Lego house and then, you know, maybe for the next 10 years, they're going to be striving to build stuff that are, that the hope that they get um, seen by Lego and then invited into um, displaying in the masterpiece gallery at some point. But it, it's weird in a way for, for, I guess, us and our contemporaries, because maybe it, it's still so new and we don't know what it, what it's like only imagine what it'll be like um, as kids grow up with having this place um, existing already. And it's just kind of cool mm -hmm. to think of that next generation, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know we're pushing time. I could ask you questions all day. I've got I have two final questions. <laughs> yep. one, one question here. Um, Lego architecture in general, I, I don't think has a great following. I know the adult communities really like it, but um, there's not much praise, uh, I think, from architecture. But I'd like to hear your thoughts. What What do you think? Is there is there a lot of praise, or because I mean, you're the one that designs this more so than I do. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about. Know praise or reviews or anything like that. I tend to um, steer away from like the comments and things like that. But I, it is um, interesting because it's at sort of an intersection of where 
one of my gripes with the professional architecture, um, I guess, uh, yeah, with professional architecture and um, how that sort of crosses over with Lego is sometimes at exhibitions, you have some regulars that are like practicing architects and things like that. And they critique on like, oh, the proportion of this Lego architecture set is off or like, I think I saw a recent review of the new White House and how that is like hopelessly out of proportion. But then also in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, when I did my model of uh, Notre Dame de Paris, I wanted to do, you know, I'm usually averse to doing something that's been done so many other times by Lego builders and been represented endlessly unless I can bring something new to the conversation so that's what I really strive for in that piece and looking at that the White House set specifically it's cool to me because it's the first time I've ever seen the east and west wings you know added onto the building and it speaks a lot it's like right up my alley because um you know uh, my gallery is titled landmark landscape it's not about just a pristine landmark on a black generic base that is not, that sort of not necessarily ignores, but also doesn't recognize its context in sort of any way. So that's a step forward. And, you know, if it comes with a slightly out of proportion, um, you know, um, aspect ratio, then that's, that's fine and that's you know something you'll only notice if you hold up a pic a real picture a picture of the real white house next to the set but um regardless i think it's just important to again um kind of humble your expectations in terms of what it should represent like i feel like there are some in the professional architecture community that would you know lego is kind of um at this point guess everyone can say they've experienced it at some time and can sort of attribute some of their inspiration to wanting to then pursue um, a um, architecture career, which I guess is sort of a dismissive way to treat the, um, you know, as how far you can take Lego in terms of architectural and artistic expression. And that's one of the motivating factors I have, having gone through the professional architecture training myself, like one of the motivational factors I have to sort of upend that whole preconceived notion or I guess stigma that goes along with, you know, um, trying to use pre-established things with pre-existing modularity and um, in expressing something else that has its own proportions and its own sets of rules. So I think in between there, there's an artistic, especially with the design of the Lego architecture sets, there's artistic eye that some people take for granted or don't necessarily, I guess, wouldn't necessarily understand unless they try their own hands at it. And it is so hard. You're right, because people always will critique work and, and try to adapt it or say something different about when it, it's hard, I think, in the Lego community to see the beauty in architecture all the time because they're like, well, why don't you be more creative and like 
design something that's not real. And I think there's almost needed more creativity in aspects of creating a building to look or uh, a city to look similar to it because of the amount of detail and um, uh, right, I guess, yeah, like what you would get if it doesn't look like the actual thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have a hard time imagining that I would have as many switches between, you know, studs up and then studs on the side and then upside down and then at an angle and then curved within like a six by six stud area if i were building something you know out of my own imagination instead of trying to capture something to look uh, to resemble you know um a specific real world detail and i think that it, it's it's good to be able to um sort of try and flex your creative um Creative muscles in that way. Do mm -hmm. it gets you thinking about you know engineering too, and that's you know um, one of the things that the Lego architecture sets themselves have also advanced as well. It's like using system elements to mostly system elements to create something that looks the same or looks similar and can actually be put together and stay together, and that's. Not an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, first, I, I just wanted to thank you for you know taking the time to come on the show today. Um, for my final question, I just wanted to ask you know <laughs> we've talked about it a lot, but just <clears throat> how do you think Lego has affected you and your life? Oh man! Well, first of all, thank you for having me, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so. How has Lego affected my life? I guess, um, you know, irrevocably, irreversibly, all those words that start with IR um, prefixes. But it's, yeah, I, as you can tell, I'm sort of um, like, you know, despite all these ideas, I don't necessarily put my finger on anything in particular. But it, it, it is safe to say that it, I, you know, if it weren't Lego, I don't know what else it would be in terms of a creative medium. And yeah, you could argue maybe um, at a certain point you would have found it if Lego weren't there for you um, this whole time. But it's, yeah, it's not lost on me how much opportunity, like completely unexpectedly, there has been just from, you know, being wanting to express things that are in my head with Lego bricks. And at the end of the day, it's just amazing because obviously we all use the same bricks, but um, no matter how detailed you get, if you like, as long as you're still using like Lego pieces, you're still able to um, present something to someone who perhaps hasn't seen Lego used it to this extent before, or, pieces used in that way before and like kids coming to the show it's just amazing to imagine um how impactful that is on them as well as well as it is for me to hear from them and see what they're picking up on and you know recognizing the million different ways you can use a one by two grill tile for instance or you know so that's that, that's what's probably the best part of it for me is 
that's not even just to call it like the feedback it's it's always i guess seeing what the audience connects with most and uh how they relate to it or what their takeaways are and you know it's it it's just great to see that seeing it affect you in this way and continuing like your life's have that engineering that that design that artwork it's really inspiring and i hope it is inspiring for anyone listening to see that that you know you continue to grow it's and it's what you want it to be um and i think Mm -hmm. lego will continue to engage in that creative aspect continue in your art and you know continue to provide for you I, I know I'm I'm a huge fan. I, I can't wait till we get shows back so I can come see some in person again. Uh, and uh, maybe one day when I travel to some of these museums, we'll also see these builds there. Um, so Rocco, I just want to say thank you again. This was really a great interview. Uh, I know you've had interviews before, so you, I knew you were ready. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I want everyone to like, I'm going to, I'm pointing out your, your uh, Instagram and your um, website. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, RJ, I'm going to just say this. Let me see if I say it right. Uh, Butlier. Yeah, Butlier. That's it. Okay. Um, and it, it'll be spelled out uh, below uh, in the notes. So please go check it out. Um, if you are looking for some of these great like architecture builds as commissions, um, if your plane's not too full, maybe you can get in the queue uh, <laughs> for uh, Rocco's uh, builds. But um, Thank you again for taking the time today. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Garrett. Really appreciate it. And uh, well, I hope we'll maybe we'll have you on again sometime. Um, but uh, we'll talk with you soon. Thank you. We'll see. Uh, take care. And like I said, I mean, you got to go check out his models. The they're insane. The amount of detail, design, and other aspects you see be it illegal in some cases, are epic. I would love to have one of the models just sitting in my home, and maybe one day I will. But definitely check out his Instagram and and if you and his website, of course, to see some of these models and the upcoming ones. I hope you enjoyed them and this episode. I really have fun doing this, and I hope you do too. Get to learn a little bit about some people you may have not heard of. And you know, keep tuning back in. We want to provide more and more, and especially as we get closer to the holiday season, we're going to do some special episodes here. And uh, I, I really enjoyed presenting this stuff to you guys. I know I am a big nerd for Lego, and a lot of you guys are too. And if you're not, that's fine too, as long as you still get creative, get out there, and go build something.